1993, in the small city of West Memphis, Arkansas, tucked between two major east-west freeways and smack in the middle of the Bible Belt, three eight-year-old boys were brutally murdered, setting the town and the area into a frenzy to find the killers. Most thought at the time these horrific crimes were the result of satanic ritual murder. Three teens, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly, who became known as the West Memphis Three, were suspected of carrying out these foul satanic rituals that ended in the young boy's death. Although there was no evidence that this was true, the teens were arrested and tried and found guilty of these horrifying crimes. Dan Stidham was a young attorney who became Jesse Miss Kelly's defender against these allegations. He had no idea that it would change his life forever. I became involved in this situation because I was hired to write the script of a nonfiction book written by reporter Mara Leverett called Devil's Knot that threw tremendous doubt on the case against the teens. That script, through several revisions, became the movie Devil's Knot, starring Reese Witherspoon and Colin Firth. My guest today is Dan Stidham, now Judge Stidham, who has lectured and written extensively on this case and his involvement in it. Dan and I became friends in 2005 when I began working on this script, and I hold this friendship as the most valuable thing to have come from me being hired to write a movie about this incredible case. Hang on to your earbuds and settle in, because this is Plot Points Podcast. so great to uh, reconnect with you after a few years. Um, how have you been? How's everything going? Oh, I'm, I've been doing great, and thanks for the invitation. Um, it's um, um, writing a book and uh, doing a few other things uh, um, and just um, trying to uh, adapt and <laughs> yeah. to this, this thing called the West Memphis murder case. Yeah, which for you started uh, in 1992. Hard to believe. 27 years or so, right? Well, it was actually uh, June uh, the 7th, 1993, which um, is uh, about 25 years ago. And then the actual trials, this is the 26th year mm. uh, for that. And um, so uh, if, assuming my math is correct and um, – but, um, yeah, I can still remember the day I got the phone call um, asking me to represent Jesse Miss Kelly. It seems like yesterday. So let's go back there. Um, let's go back before the trial, because what was your life like um, be- before this whole, the, this whole circus started? And, and I don't mean to say circus to demean what happened, but it certainly was a circus with HBO and and uh, reporters and all this stuff. But tell me, get, take us back a little bit before, what was your day like or what was your life like before uh, you took on Jesse as a client? Well, <laughs> looking back, I, I can see now quite clearly that um, uh, my life is divided into two sections uh, before uh, Jesse, Miss Kelly, and after Jesse, Miss Kelly. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, we, as we look back on our lives, we can 
there's certain events that occur that, that kind of draw lines uh, in the sand and and uh, are markers as to when things begin to change. Mm-hmm. Um, to give you an example, I don't want to go too far off the off the the topic, but but recently, uh, in anticipation of my daughter's wedding in a few weeks, she asked me to go back and and look at uh, some old photo albums and pick out some pictures of of she and I for her slideshow at the wedding. And um, I uh, I found a bunch of pictures that I hadn't looked at in a long time. And I I looked at the dates and it's like, wow, I was in the middle of the trial uh, mm-hmm. at that time. And I, I can still see the day's look on my face um, <laughs> from all the stress and all the torment. And, yeah. and, um, and so it brought back a lot of, uh, I don't know what the word is, I guess, maybe triggers uh to some old stressors and and uh but yeah it's it, everything changed on that day i i uh um you know I, I just it wasn't what i expected it to be when i got the phone call that morning and was asked mm-hmm. to take on this task and and um uh, at the time i really thought uh well since there's a confession it'll be you know, a few months and, and, uh, it'll all be over and move on to the next case, but it didn't quite turn out that way. No kidding. Yeah. So Jesse was, um, one of the younger of the defendants, correct? He was, was he 16 or 17? He was 17 and Mr. Baldwin was 16. 16 um, and Damien was 18. Um, 18. That's correct. So you, uh, obviously had you heard, uh, anything about the case, before you took the case, was it was it pretty common knowledge that these three boys were were brutally murdered and that these three teens were arrested? Or I mean, what was the what was you're you don't live in West Memphis, Arkansas, I know, or you didn't at the time. Um, so what was it like uh, in that area? Just as a outside observer, what did you think? Well, my case or my knowledge of the case, I should say was limited to the media coverage at the time. And I still remember vividly uh, the day that it happened um, and the announcement came on CNN. I, I was uh, in Little Rock fishing with my father and we came in from crappie fishing and and I saw this blurb on the news and it's like, oh, wow. Um, and one of the reasons why it's so vivid is... Uh, um, my dad looked at me and he said, you don't have any, uh, reason whatsoever to get involved in something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I laughed at the time <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I'm, we live so far away from West Memphis and Paragould. Uh, we're at opposite ends of the largest, uh, judicial district in Arkansas geographically. And, and, um, it just seemed too far away for me to ever, even have the remote possibility of being involved in the case. Mm. But I was wrong. (laughs) No kidding. So why did you take the case? I mean, did I know were at the time were you tapped to be the public defender or was it a, did you have the option of not taking it? I did. And I was, um, I, I was the public defender for green County, uh, Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And, uh, which is, we're in the northeast corner of uh, Arkansas, about uh, 90 miles um, north of West Memphis in the Memphis metropolitan area. And um, so, you know, we just seemed 
you know, too far away to, to ever have that possibility. But uh, as fate would have it, um, I got a phone call from Judge David Goodson, who mm-hmm. is from Paragould, um, someone who I was quite familiar with. And he had uh, drawn, just by coincidence, uh, to be in, he was in Marion the day, Marion and West Memphis are kind of the same place. West Memphis is a little bit larger than than uh, um, Marion, but that's where the courthouse is, and that's the county seat. <clears throat> so Judge Goodson just happened to be on the bench the day that uh, all this went down, um, and so it was his task to assign lawyers to the case, and he called me that morning, and and uh, which is unusual to hear from a judge. Yeah. And uh, the first thing that flashed to my mind was, "Oh my God, what did I forget? Where, where am I supposed <laughs> to be this morning?" Uh, you know, it's just uh, a, a kind of panic. And and so, um, in fact, I was getting out of the shower, and my my uh, ex-wife uh, came in and said, "Judge Goodson's on the phone," and and so I quickly wrapped a towel around myself and got to the phone and. And uh, he said, hey, Dan, um, I'm in Marion this morning, and uh, I'm assigning lawyers to this triple homicide in in West Memphis, and, and I thought of you. And, um, and I thought, wow, you know. Wow. Uh, and he said, um, well, we've had lawyers flocking to, to uh, represent uh, Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin, but nobody seems to want to deal with the young Mr. Miss Kelly. And then of course the reason for that was, is he was the one who confessed. And, um, so he said, um, I, I'd really like for you to do this. And he even mentioned that, uh, this is going to be a piece of cake. Uh, you'll, you know, you'll get him prepared to testify against the other two and you'll be on TV a couple of times and then it'll all be over. And, and um, wow. so, um, uh, and, you know, I, I kept thinking about what my dad had told me. Don't get involved in something like that. And, and um, but I was leaning towards doing it. And so I tried to call my law partner at the time, uh, Mr. Crow, Greg Crow, and I couldn't reach him by telephone. And so there was only one other adult in the, in the house. And so I went to ask my ex-wife, uh, for her advice, because Judge Goodson gave me 20 minutes to decide, and huh. um, and I was into about the 18th minute about that time, <laughs> and uh, so I thought, well, she'll talk me out of it. She'll say no, and and uh, maybe not just no, but hell no. And, mm-hmm. and you know, we had uh, at that time three young children, one of whom was about the same age as as um, the victims. And I just assumed that she would say, don't do it, don't do it. And and um, I really needed somebody to talk me out of it more than anything, I guess. Right. And, and so she surprised me. She said, do it. Um, mm-hmm. That's what you went to law school for. And you, lo- you love this kind of thing. And and I thought, really? And, and so I called Judge Goodson back and said, I'm in. And mm-hmm. um, and that's how it all got started. Wow. I I can't. I still can't wrap my mind around the idea that that one moment in your life completely changed your life, uh, even to this point, uh, 27, 26 years later. Um, it's just amazing. Um, so the, Well, this case has been a series of phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
over the course of, of the last uh, uh, 26 years or so, it, it's, um, yeah, just one phone call after the other, and it's it, you never know what's going to happen next. It's um, This is a vivid example of, of uh, real life being much stranger than fiction. You can't make this stuff up. It's just it's so crazy. It's, it's unimaginable. Well, and we're going to talk about your book, a um, little bit later on, but that's I can't wait to read it. Uh, just to because I know it's been several years in the uh, in the in the works. So, um, but I I still want to stick around uh, the time of this uh, situation, this whole horrible thing. And I just I just want to acknowledge uh, the young the young boys that died: uh, Steve Branch, Stephen Branch, um, uh, Michael Moore, and. Christopher Byers, uh, we both Dan and I am sure still feel uh, a tremendous sense of horror and loss at uh, at to their fam- for their families. Um, it, it's an it's a compelling story about the three teens that that were, uh, as both of us believe, were were unjustly accused and convicted. But there's no doubt that the uh, the the true victims here are the young men, the young eight year old boys and their families. So um, to all of them, uh, we at least for me, I'm going to say uh, you have my my utmost condolences if I've never expressed it before, because um, we you and I tend to think of this as a, an assignment, a movie assignment. And um, I, I don't know about you, but things sometimes things get lost in the mix when you're when you're dealing with uh you know, when you're tangential to the case, and of course you're not, but um, we we still, for me at least, uh, it it doesn't feel as real as for those people whose you know kids were taken from them. And that's so very true. And and there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about those three kids and mm. and their images are completely frozen in my hard drive and mm. and um it uh, uh that's that's just part of it and and um that's why i'm still chasing serial killers to this day yeah because i really want to provide some some closure to these parents and i've, I've gotten to know uh <clears throat> pam mm-hmm. uh Stevie Branch's mother over the years, and uh, she and I stay in touch, and um, not as frequently as we probably should, but but uh, we touch base from time to time, and and uh, she, I, I know her story better than than the others because I've never had a conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Moore, and mm-hmm. and um, John Mark Byers and I. Um, uh, there towards the the end of the, the actual case itself um, became uh, uh, acquaintances uh, at least uh, and um, um, got to know him a little bit. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, uh, there was a there was a time when we were adversaries in the well, case, and and um, but um, yeah, it, it's with Pam. Uh, it um it's it's been it's been uh she's really had a rough time and 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 um every time I talk to her it's just I can feel the pain and and uh but it keeps me motivated, keeps me moving forward. Mm-hmm. Well and Pam um initially was a pretty harsh uh 
uh, proponent of a, a death penalty for your client and the other two teens, but she she eventually turned around, correct? She eventually became an advocate for their release. She did, and it was it was a long process, <clears throat> and it wasn't one that that uh, I initiated, mm-hmm. uh, even though I was the one that she reached out to uh, initially. But um, I I never wanted to to insert myself into into their grief and loss. And in yeah. fact, I being a father myself, I just I just can't imagine uh, well, what it would be like to to have to endure that type of uh, uh, pain and grief. But but um, she she reached out to me at first through another family member, and and um, she turned over actually turned over some evidence to me. Hmm. Interesting. In the case, and and um, uh, she said she didn't trust the prosecutors or the state of Arkansas to handle the evidence, and mm-hmm. she wanted good, to give it to me, but for good reason. Well, <laughs> yeah, I I guess I would have to agree with that. I and, mean, they and, during the trial they admitted the police admitted that they had lost blood evidence that would have been that perhaps had been would have been crucial to the the case right that the mr bojangles blood evidence uh they did lose that and and um uh and you know it's difficult for me um looking back all those many years ago and and criticize those guys um for being uh unprepared for the, the this task that was handed to them because uh uh, I I was 30 years old and this was my first jury trial, and and um, so it, I made a lot of mistakes too. Mm. But um, um, well, you didn't made lose, some, you didn't lose evidence, so you didn't. No, I didn't lose any evidence, yeah. and yeah. and um, um, there was a lot of uh, misconduct on the part of uh, the police um, that I still. Um, you know, I guess I've reached the stage um, in this, and it may just be the passage of time. Um, but but I, I I used to have a lot of um, resentment, animosity, I guess you could call it, mm-hmm. um, towards um, some of the people involved in this. And and don't get me wrong, I've never forgotten what right. what happened, but um, I've learned to. To I guess pour it through a different filter after all these years, and um, you know, I just if they'd have done some of the things different, um, had they preserved the crime scene uh, in a better fashion, for mm-hmm. example, um, uh, had they not lost the evidence, uh, the, the Bojangles uh, blood uh, evidence that, that you were referring to. Um, and you know, the list goes down and, 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 uh, um, I didn't particularly like the fact that I was lied to or misled and that evidence was withheld and, and, uh, things of that nature. Um, but you know, um, hate is, is something that'll eat you alive. Yep. And I've had to come to terms with that. And, and I'm not saying that, um, uh, I won't ever forget it, nor will I ever uh, hold them to account. That's, in, in fact, that's that's the reason why I'm writing the book, is because I, it's important to me 
that uh, everybody know what really happened. And mm-hmm. I'm in a unique position to be able to explain what really happened because I was the only lawyer who was involved in the case from the beginning to to the end uh, with the Alfred plea in 2011. Right. And so, um, it, it's that I think it's important that people know. And the fact that the state of Arkansas never had to repent uh, for for their sins. Mm, yeah. I remember when I was doing the research for this, all I really had at the moment uh, that I started was the book uh, that Mara Leverett, the incredible book that she wrote about this case and about her doubts about um the whole situation, as she brought up so many uh, inconsistencies with not only the investigation, but the trial, et cetera, et cetera. And then, um, so I, I read there were there was also a group at the time called the, uh, uh, the WM3 that was a, they were advocates for uh, these young men, these teens. And there were, there was some court transcripts and things like that, but and I, I hope we can talk about this. If you, if we can't, just tell me and I'll cut it out of the podcast. But you reached out to me one, I think it was one night and, um, I picked up the phone and I can remember, you know, you have this laconic, uh, um, delivery and, and, and affect, but you are more passionate about this case and your clients than, than almost anybody I've, I've ever met. And I know a lot of attorneys. But the, the point of it was, is you reached out to me to give me some help when I didn't have any, when basically all I could do was read uh, transcripts and read books and read, look at pictures. You, you stepped in and gave me some good, some really, not, not that you uh, gave me anything that was, um, you know, that you shouldn't have, but your, uh, the ability to talk to a person made a huge difference in my script. Um, why did you do that? Well, <laughs> it's um, there's a couple of reasons. Um, first, I guess, and uh, is the fact that Mara Leverett is is a good friend of mine, and mm. and um, I did the same thing with uh, with her book, Devil's Knot, mm-hmm. um, and she would call and and say, "Hey, Dan, did this really happen?" and and I'd say, yeah, but you know, it didn't really happen quite that way. This is how this is how it went down. And so I kind of became the unofficial fact checker, uh, and it was very important for Mar to make sure that everything was factually correct. And um, when um, I started performing much the same task for you, and I, I just, I guess, I wanted to make sure that. Uh, um, the story was was uh, true to the facts of the case, and not just some crazy um, uh, horror film, uh, for <laughs> lack of a better, better way to say it. Uh, I didn't want it to, uh, to end up being uh, the next version of The Exorcist. Um, <laughs> you mean and, zombie and so- zombie killers coming out of the bayou? You didn't like that? What the hell? Come on. <laughs> Well, you know, it, that uh, there's always a place for that, but uh, <laughs> and, and something that that um, that I actually lived and breathed, uh, and, and still am today. I, I just wanted to um, uh, make sure that that um, 
that the story was was told in a way that, and, and I understand that, that uh, and I understand it better now than I did in 2005 because I'm getting close to to being done with, with uh, the final draft of my book, <clears throat> and it's a lot easier, I think, um, to break it down and try to put it in a two-hour format. Uh, it's it's not easier in the sense that that um, um, that, that in, in many ways it's difficult, and I'll try to elaborate that. But when when you're trying to catalog something that happened over the course of you know, a quarter of a century, it's very difficult to try to get that into uh, a book and meet the publisher's demands with regard to the length, and, and mm-hmm. et cetera. So you have to kind of pick and choose what you're going to put in, and and so um, I, I say it's easier because I'm not a screenwriter. Um, but you have to condense all those years into a two hour format. So you have to do things like, um, um, and, and you'll have to forgive me cause I'm not familiar with the lingo, but, um, a composite character, mm-hmm. uh, could be someone, uh, or you know, something. three different people. Uh, oh yeah. And, and, um, there's been many times in, in the book, I'd like to say, man, I wish I could just put this on the screen or. Uh, you know, just have uh, put two or three people together in a room and explain all this in, in you know, 30 seconds instead of having to write six chapters. Oh, God, yeah. Um, and so uh, it's it's two different things. And, and um, I've, I've, uh, I've never written a screenplay. And, and uh, I'll candidly confess that I, I came to the conclusion after many years of writing, uh, I finally got an editor um and uh, now uh, i have a co-author uh who i've asked to come in and and uh because i i write like a lawyer i don't mm. uh, i'm i'm not a writer i hope someday to be able to to make that transformation and um i'm actually writing a fiction book uh, uh let's as, talk about as, that as, let's talk about that in a little bit okay because i i don't want to okay. yeah i want to get that for the the other podcast so um so the thing is, is what I what I felt was that I was um, that I was able to make. There were things about the case that I had to, as you said, composite and change around because uh, I was trying to get in the rumor as well as the fact. There was a lot of rumor. I uh, you know this area much better than I, obviously, but there's a lot of superstition regarding um the devil um you know they there are people down in in the bible belt that believe that the devil actually physically walks the earth um so you provided a um a, a counterpoint to that and and without getting into any religious or uh anything like that any religious ideology you were basically telling me the facts of the case as opposed to the rumor and that was going around at the time, and that really made it really informed my script. Um, so your point about you wanted to make sure it was going to be as factual as possible is a great one, because it allowed me to do things um, and and say things that I didn't I wouldn't have been able to without your help. Uh, but in the process, you and I um, became friends. It's yeah, I still fondly remember those late nights on the phone with you, that voice on the other end of the phone. We, you and I have never met in person.
one of the things I want to bring to the audience is I always, there's an old cartoon about a character named Horton who says, I said what I meant, I meant what I said, an elephant's faithful 100% about him sitting on an egg until it hatches through storms and everything. And I always felt you were that character in spirit because you did take Jesse Miss Kelly's case and you stuck with this all the way through to now and even beyond. Um, tell me what your first uh, experience was with Jesse and how did um, how did his recantation of his so-called confession come about? Well, um, he immediately recanted his confession. Okay. Um, before you he were was told, before I was involved, yes. Uh-huh. And um, he uh, was told repeatedly over the course of the of the day. And when I talk about the day, it, it, was, it was we don't know exactly how long he was in the interrogation room because uh, the last segment of the of the so-called confession. Um, the officer does not state what the time was when it started or ended. Mm. And, um, but, uh, he had been told repeatedly throughout the day, if you just tell us what we want to hear, then you can go home and be with your dad. Mm. And right. so, um, even someone who's mentally challenged, uh, understands that I don't want to be in this situation. I want to go home. Uh, the best way I can get out of this situation is to, uh, try to parrot back to these officers what it is that they want to hear so that I can go. And right. when he realized that he was going to jail instead of home, he immediately recanted. Mm. And um, uh, uh, there was one witness to the recantation, uh, a public defender who uh, went by and visited, as I recall. And when I talked to her, she had a bad, bad case of amnesia. <laughs> um, and, uh, she could remember, you know, just a little bit here and there, but, uh, um, uh, she obviously did not want to get drug in the middle of that. And, of course. but, um, um, uh, setting that aside, uh, my first encounter with my client, um, um, took place probably four or five days after I got involved in the case. Mm-hmm. He was originally housed in uh, Cross County, Arkansas, which is um, south of here. Uh, and uh, it's on Interstate 40, just uh, west of West Memphis. Mm-hmm. And that was too far away from, from my liking for a variety of reasons. Um, so I, I, that was my first task was to get him transferred to someplace local. Mm-hmm. And the Clay County Detention Center, which is just north of us, and ultimately where the trial ended up happening, um, there was a brand new facility, and I knew the sheriff personally, and so I, I thought he'll be safe there, and, and I won't have to worry about anybody knowing where he's at. And so we had him transferred, and that's where I first met Mr. Miss Kelly was at the Clay County Detention Center in Pigott, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. And um. I, I remember that's you know that's one of those things that uh, it's emblazoned in, in my memory is is what I was anticipating. I'd seen you know pictures of him on the news and uh, mm-hmm. the newspapers, and I had read the the, the twenty eight page uh, confession, and it was absolutely horrific uh, the details and. 
and uh, what had happened and what had occurred, and it was just, it was an atrocity. And well, wait, you know, it, was, it, it was an atrocity, the crime or the the confession that they basically coerced out of him. As it turned out, it was both. Yeah, right. <laughs> but but uh, what what he was describing was um, the brutal uh, sexual assault and and murders of three eight year old kids and. And the homicides, triple homicides are very, very rare. Mm-hmm. And um, usually they're associated with gang activity or drug activity. And uh, to, to, you know, to have a triple homicide of three eight-year-olds is almost unheard of. Right. And so, you know, it, it, it created this huge uh, panic in, in uh, not only West Memphis, but in, in the entire Mid-South. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a local story; it was a it was a national story. But but um, I had this vision in my mind that I was fixing to go meet um, a, a tough, fairly good sized um, mm-hmm. street thug um, who was seventeen, going on uh, thirty five. Right. Uh, and uh, when we walked into the jail cell, and here sat this little um, kid. I mean, he he didn't look like he was even a teenager. He, he was so small um, that I really thought that they'd taken me to the wrong cell. Oh, wow. And uh, in fact, the jail uniform um, was so extra large for him that he had to roll up the, the pants, legs, and the sleeves just to be able to wear it. Wow. And then I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I'm, I was expecting to meet Charles Manson uh, <laughs> in his in his teenage years, and and suddenly I'm I'm sitting there looking at uh, this scared child, uh, mm. for lack of a better word, um, and, and it was again I thought thought I was in the wrong place. Wow. So he, he was not what I was expecting, and um, uh, and I think that uh, um, I think everybody that encountered him uh, after that felt the same way. Because he just didn't look like the person that you would imagine uh, who could possibly be involved in something like this. Well, plus his affect. I mean, the way he presented himself. uh, He didn't, like you said, he didn't appear to be Charles Manson in his teenage years. He just appeared to be some some confused, scared kid. Right. It just that's that's a great uh, way to say it. And. He wouldn't make eye contact. And, oh, yeah. um, he didn't offer any type of narrative about you know what happened. It was just kind of he could go, yeah, uh huh, uh huh, yeah, mm-hmm. or uh uh-uh. uh, you know. Just, there was there was no narrative at all. And even after that first meeting, uh, you know, I'm, I'm left. Uh, of course, Mr. Crow was with me and. And uh, as as my as well as my legal assistant at the time, uh, Vicky Cross, and and when we left, we we're all just kind of shaking our heads. It's like something's not right here. Yeah. You know what yeah. what's going on? And and um, you know if and 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 Jesse, but for a couple of sentences in the confession, um, he almost was a false witness to this case instead of a, a false confessor because 
basically he's just saying that Damien and Jason did this. and He was an observer. And there was only one point where he attempted to offer some sort of narrative mm-hmm. uh, to his statement. And that's when he said one of the little boys ran off and he ran him down and grabbed him and brought him back to the crime scene right. and ultimately was killed. So if he hadn't brought that up um, in an effort to try to please his interrogators, then he would have just been a witness mm-hmm. and he wouldn't have been a defendant. Mm-hmm. Um, now they would have, I'm sure, tried to, to you know, charge him anyway. But but um, you know, when you break it down into what uh, what he was telling them is that uh, he didn't kill anybody, he didn't rape anybody, he was just watching this unfold. So um, it just didn't make any sense as we as we talked to him that day because he, you know, if if you'd actually seen something like this happen, it would be something that you'd never forget. Absolutely, and you'd be able to remember every detail. You'd remember every sight, every sound, uh, you know, every emotion, and and there was no emotion. There was no there was no nothing. It was just like, uh, he, he, it, it, I know it sounds silly, but he, he was like a parrot on a pirate shoulder, just kind of repeating. Um, and the last thing I wanted to do that day was put a tape recorder in front of him and, and grill him like the police had been mm-hmm. doing. So I, you know, we just took notes. Uh, my legal assistant took, took the notes actually. And, and we were just trying to, to get to know, uh, the young Jesse Miss Kelly. And, so- Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just I was just going to say that we 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 scratched our heads and and I, I I distinctly remember asking him, you know, which there there was one of the victims who was sexually mutilated, and and uh, I kept asking him, um, you know, which one of the three kids, you know, was sexually mutilated, and he kept getting it wrong every time. He would oh insist gosh, that it was man. a dark-haired boy. There was only one blonde-headed boy, and that's the one who was mutilated. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. It was the other way around. Um, uh, Christopher Byers had been sexually mutilated, right. and he kept insisting that it was the blonde child who was uh, uh, Pam's son. And, mm. and uh and so, you know, you you gotta, you know, you think you'd remember that, and if, if you were actually there. And he just kept insisting and insisting and insisting. And of course, we didn't want to push him too hard the first, uh, the for our, in our first encounter. But um, that 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 bothered me more than anything because if you were actually there and you saw this occurring, you couldn't make a mistake like mm-hmm. that. I mean, you just you just couldn't be done. So when we left, you know, the uh, on the way back to Paragould, uh, which is about thirty miles or so, you know, we talked about why, why can't he remember things? Why, why? What's the problem? And and I remember Greg saying to me, Mr. Crow, saying, "How are how are we going to get this kid ready to testify? If he can't remember anything right now, how's he going to remember it? You know, in six months or a year?" Um, so. Uh, it was it was frightening. It really was, and I'm sure it was frightening, had, and confusing, and and you you had no. I mean, this is you said you were 30 years old at the time. Imagine the 30 year old you. What you what you must have been going through trying to figure this out. Oh yeah, I, 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 
looking back, I, I still see that young 30-year-old idealistic uh, young lawyer who believed in the system, mm-hmm. um, who who felt like uh, there was uh, uh, all these cornerstones and pillars of our criminal justice system that, that, that were there to make sure that injustice didn't happen. I mean, I, I, I was, uh, I had drank the Kool-Aid and I was a believer. Um, and, and, um, I I thought you were innocent until you were proven guilty. Mm -hmm. I thought that all, all these, um, uh, all these rules and and safeguards were there to protect, uh, uh, my client. And, and so, um, ultimately and down the road a bit, when we finally had that aha moment, uh, the epiphany, as I like to refer to it, um, that's when that's when everything changed. That was part one of my interview with Dan Stidham. I will try to drop part two and three in consecutive weeks, so look for part two next week and part three in the week following. My thanks to Dan and to those listening. This is Plot Points Podcast, and I'm Mark Sevy. As always, be inspired, do good work. Mm-hmm.